What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, tonight we get to start a new book of the Bible. We're going to be starting a study through the book of Exodus. And as we do at the start of every book, I think it's great to get a little bit of background information. I also want to give you an outline of where we're going to be going with this book. And so let's start with a little background information about Exodus. The word Exodus means the going out or the departure, and uh, it's a very fitting name and title for this book since uh, it really kind of gives you the summary of the book because Exodus is about God miraculously delivering the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt uh, as they depart for the promised land. Uh, Exodus was written by Moses, who's also the main character uh, in this book, uh, written between 1440 and 1420 B.C., and uh, unlike Genesis, where we had a whole bunch of people, uh, Exodus really only just has a few main characters, Moses, Miriam, Pharaoh, Aaron, and Joshua. Now, the key events that take place in Exodus all are very significant events. And, you know, as you kind of hear them, you might think, wow, these are all in the book of Exodus, but the 10 plagues, Israel's deliverance from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, God providing uh, miraculous food and water in the wilderness, the 10 commandments, uh, the tabernacle, all these take place here in the book of Exodus. And there are some key places in Exodus. Not everything is in Egypt. As you can see here on this map, Egypt is One of the significant places there in Egypt is the land of Goshen, uh, where the nation of Israel is living. The Nile River is going to be significant. Midian, the Red Sea, the Sinai Peninsula, Mount Sinai are all key places that we're going to see here in Exodus. Another interesting thing about the book of Exodus is it has more miracles in it than any other Old Testament book. Uh, And so we're going to see a lot of the miraculous move of God uh, throughout this book. And um, those are some important bits of background information. Now we'll move to our outline. And this outline is going to be... um, a little bit different than the ones that we've done. And the difference is the fact that we're not just going to focus on the major events that happen throughout this book. We're also going to see how these events are an amazing picture of Jesus, how these events correlate to our lives as believers. Uh, And so everything that you see here in parentheses in the outline, that's either uh, giving us a picture of Jesus or it's showing us a correlation to us as a believer. So I'll give you a few examples. Exodus starts with a deliverer. That deliverer is Moses, who is chosen by God to deliver the nation of Israel out of slavery to Egypt. Uh, And we see a wonderful picture in that of Jesus our deliverer who was chosen by God to deliver us out of slavery to sin. The way that God delivered Israel was by a lamb who had to be killed. That blood had to be put on the doorpost uh, and ultimately that protected the nation of Israel from the, the angel of death. Uh, and God's power also was what enabled them to be delivered as he parted the Red Sea and destroyed their enemies. And so a wonderful picture as well of Jesus, who's the lamb, whose blood was shed for us. The power of God that rose Jesus from the dead to conquer our enemies of sin and death. When Israel learns, um, they learn many things as they travel from Egypt to ultimately Mount Sinai, and we're going to see six major things that they're going to uh, learn in that, and, and they're going to correlate to things that you and I go through as believers as well. Uh, we're also going to look at the law, and as we see the law, and you know, it's more than just the Ten Commandments, we're going to realize, wow, there's no possible way that we could ever keep this, and so it reveals our need for a Savior. And finally, we're going to see how the tabernacle is a pattern and picture 
of Christ. And so as we go through Exodus, we're not just going to be looking at the details of each, you know, chapter and verse. We're going to see also how those details, you know, picture for us Jesus or correlate to us as believers. But we do want to look at the details. We're not just going to spend our whole time seeing how everything is a picture of something else. We're going to look at first, you know, what actually is said, the facts that are there, what it means, and then, you know, when it's pertinent, we'll see how those things are a picture of something else as well. And so Exodus has four main sections, uh, four main things that it deals with. And so uh, I've broken the, um, these down into four different slides so that you can see them better. But the, the first section I've titled A Deliverer because that's what it deals with. It deals with God raising up Moses as the deliverer for the people of Israel. This is going to deal with the first 11 chapters of Exodus. In chapter 1, we're going to have the slavery of Israel in Egypt, which we'll look at tonight. Chapter 2, we have the birth of Moses, and then we have the first 40 years of Moses' life there in Pharaoh's palace. In chapter 3, we have the call of Moses and the second 40 years of his life in Midian. In chapter 4, we have the return of Moses to Egypt and his announcement to Pharaoh that God has told him that you need to let Israel go. In chapters 5 through 11, we kind of have the battle, really the battle between Pharaoh and God. Moses is just the mouthpiece, and God's going to send nine plagues during this um, battle. And then in verse... So those are the first 11 chapters, and, and really they, they cover over 80 years of time. So there's a lot that's going to be going on in these first 11 chapters. And the main focus is God preparing Moses to be the deliverer for the nation of Israel. The second section I've titled Deliverance because it deals with the actual deliverance that God brings to the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And these are verses, uh, or chapters, sorry, 12 through 14. Uh, and we see two of the most significant events that we have in the whole book. We have the Passover, uh, and there's going to be so much that we're going to be able to draw from that. And it's something that even to this day, the nation of Israel continually remembers what God did during the Passover. And also after the Passover, uh, we're going to be looking at God's miraculous power as he parts the Red Sea, not just to, you know, get the nation of Israel where they're going, but also to destroy the armies who are seeking to come against them. And so both of these two uh, things really bring out the deliverance of God, and we're going to see a lot through that. The third section I've titled Journey to Mount Sinai because it deals with the journey to Mount Sinai that the nation of Israel has um, from Egypt to Mount Sinai. And uh, this section covers chapters 15 through 18, and it deals with six specific things that they're going to encounter on this journey. Uh, in chapter 15, verses 1 through 22, we have them singing a song of their redemption. They've finally been delivered. The armies of Egypt have been destroyed. They sing this wonderful song. They're so excited, and yet they find themselves in the wilderness of Shur with no food or no water. So right after they're redeemed, their situation is pretty bleak. And the correlation to us is there's no bed of roses after redemption. In verses 23 through 27, the Israelites are in Mara, where the water is bitter uh, and they can't drink it, but God sweetens the water with a tree. Uh, and the correlation to us is that the cross sweetens the bitter experiences of life. In chapter 16, we have God providing miraculous fruit from heaven, which he calls manna. Uh, and the correlation for us is that Christ is the bread of life. In chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, we have God providing water from a rock, and the correlation for us is that Jesus is the rock. In chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, we have God helping the nation of Israel be victorious over the people of Amalek, uh, which we see in the Bible as kind of a reference or speaks more of the flesh, and so we're going to see God giving us victory over our flesh. And then finally, in chapter 18, we have Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, give advice to Moses on leadership, uh, and we're going to see some things for us about how we can lead wisely. And so in these four chapters, there's six things that they learn, and then there'll be six things that we can learn as well. And then the fourth section I've titled The Law because it deals with the giving of the law. We have chapters 19 through 24, first Israel arriving in Mount Sinai, then God uh, giving Moses the Ten Commandments, then we have God giving several other laws, and then we have Israel accepting the covenants that God gives to them. Uh, and with all this, we're going to see, man, what they're being asked to do is really impossible for anyone to actually accomplish, which reveals to us our need for Jesus. 
And this fifth section, the final one, I've entitled the tabernacle because it deals with the blueprints of building the tabernacle. And you'll notice that it's actually the longest section in our outline, chapters 25 through 40. And I did not give you a breakdown of these 16 chapters because we're actually going to look at this a little differently than we do the rest of the book because this is a very repetitive section of Scripture. And so it gives the blueprints more than once. A lot of these things about the tabernacle is repeated. And so if we did it our typical way of going verse by verse, we would be very repetitive and doing the same thing more than once. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to take a whole in-depth study of the tabernacle. So take all 16 of those chapters, and I'm going to do a study on the tabernacle of everything that God reveals in that. So we're not going to miss anything, but we're also not going to repeat anything, and we're just going to do one study. And within that, one of the main things that we're going to really focus on is how the tabernacle is a picture and pattern of Jesus. And so everything that the temple or the tabernacle had, all the different things, we're going to get to see how that points us to Jesus. And so, you know, if you've looked at the tabernacle before and you think, man, this is so irrelevant to my life, all these different intricacies and things, you know, what does that have to do with me? I think after you see, you know, how this is such a wonderful picture of Jesus, you'll definitely see it in a very different light, a much more applicable one. So, that's the outline of Exodus. Hopefully it gives you a better understanding of the four main things we're going to cover, the direction that we're going. Um, Ray Steadman said this about Exodus. Genesis ends with the words, a coffin in Egypt. All you can say about man when you have said everything there is to say is that he lives in the realm of death. But Exodus is all about God. Exodus is God's answer to man's need and God's supply for man's sin. It begins immediately with God's activity, and throughout the whole course of the book, you see God mightily at work. The book is the picture, therefore, of redemption, of God's activity to redeem man in his need, in his sin, in his degradation, and misery. As such, it's a beautiful picture and contains tremendously instructive lessons to us of what redemption is, that is, what God has done, is doing in our lives, and what he intends to do with us. You know, redemption is such a wonderful topic, and we had like Romans where we dealt with it, and you know, Paul kind of explains it in good detail there. But what I love about Exodus is we have redemption, but not in those kind of doctrinal terms. We have it kind of lived out in lives of people. And so it's a, a very illustrative book of just seeing God redeeming people who are in slavery. And it's such a wonderful picture of what God does for us and how he redeems us. And so, you know, I think this is a great, great book to really get a better perspective of what redemption is and how God uh, redeems each one of us. And so that's our outline. That's some of the background information. And now we're going to jump right into uh, the first chapter because I want to get through that tonight. And so Exodus chapter 1. Remember, we're now kind of picking up a little bit from where we left off in Genesis. We're going to see that there's a, a time uh, that's transpired here for a bit. But chapter 1 of Exodus, verse 1 says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons for Joseph was already was in Egypt already. And Joseph died and his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. So Exodus starts reminding us of the kind of the latter part of Genesis of what we saw there. Remember, Jacob brings his family to Egypt. How many people come? There's 70 people that are there in Egypt, and that is the number that we start with. And God promised you know, to Jacob, hey, I'm going to make you a mighty nation there in Egypt. And we don't know exactly how much time has transpired from the time of you know the end of Genesis now to where we're starting Exodus, you know, many thoughts are around 300 years, but it's definitely been some significant time that has transpired. Um, and everybody that we knew from um, Genesis is dead. You know, all the sons of Jacob are dead, you know, in this amount of time, most likely all the grandsons and great grandsons are dead as well. Um, and so now we come 
to something that's very important here, though. Verse 7 kind of sets the stage for this chapter and the things that transpire because of it. But notice what we're told here in verse 7. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. So what was originally 70 people that came to Egypt, now things have changed. Now it's this small group that has turned into this quite large group. We're told this group has increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now this is a great thing to see because it's a fulfilled promise. Remember God said to Abraham, he also said to Isaac, he said to Jacob, I am going to make you a great nation. Specifically to Jacob, he tells him, I'm going to actually do it in Egypt, where Abraham and Isaac figured that it was going to happen in the promised land. God says, no, I'm actually going to do that in Egypt. And we're seeing that God is fulfilling that promise. And the big thing that's significant is how fast this growth is happening because you have 70 people that started and now you have this large group of people that are there in just a matter of a couple hundred years. I want you to note something. In Numbers chapter 1, verse 46, we're told, all those who were numbered were 603,550. Right after the Israelites received the Ten Commandments, they number their fighting men, men that can go to war. So younger men, men who are strong, men who are able to go and fight. And the number that we have is 603,550 men. So right after the Ten Commandments, after the deliverance um, from Egypt, they count just the fighting men and you have that many. If you include women and you include children and you include elderly men who wouldn't be able to fight, you'd have several million people at this point in time. Uh, we don't know exactly how many. Some go as high as four or five million. Some say more around two and two and a half. But at the end of the day, you do have a couple million people. And this happened in really only about 430 years. So you go from 70 to a couple million, and we just see God's hand on the growth rate uh, of the nation of Israel. And this is something that's just a wonderful thing that we see from the Lord. And if you remember from Genesis, we mentioned, hey, Exod um, Egypt was the perfect place for this to happen because they're racist. They're, you know, they think that the Jews um, and the shepherds are an abomination. They didn't want anything to do with them. And so a wonderful place, not only for them to grow, but from them to grow away from intermarrying with the pagans, away from idolatry and all these other things. And so the Lord has just helped this nation to grow there in Egypt. Um, and so I'm sure all the you know, Hebrews are thinking, man, this is so great. What God says is coming to pass. This is so wonderful. But there's a group that does not like this rapid growth. The amount of people now that was only 70 that now is growing and growing and growing. And we don't know exactly how many there are at this point, but probably close to a million at least. Uh, and so now we have a group that doesn't like the growth. And this is the Egyptians. And so let's see how they respond to the growth of everyone else. Uh, starting in verse 8, it says this. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more mighty than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pitham and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So notice here in verse 8, we're told there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, we don't know exactly who this new king is. You know, there are definitely different thoughts, you know, because... Um, the Egyptian history isn't really that accurate at this time, and it's hard for us to pinpoint 
who actually was the Pharaoh. Many people who are scholars believe this was also not just a new king, but a new dynasty, uh, which would help explain the next statement of they didn't know anything about Joseph. You know, remember, Joseph's a quite significant character. He helped save all of Egypt, but also realize that's something that probably happened a couple hundred years before what we're seeing transpire right here. And this new king that many people believe, or at least most scholars, if they were going to pick someone, they usually pick Ramses II, but we're not sure if that truly is the one who rules at this time. But the fact that they didn't know Joseph, you know, at first you read that and think, well, Joseph was so significant, how could anyone forget him? But yeah, you know, you look through history and it's so quick, people forget those who have done great things for a nation. Um, you know, Jenny and I, when we were in Scotland, I know when I um, was traveling around Europe, I visited France. And, you know, the Americans helped France in World War One, in World War Two, if it wasn't for us, they'd be speaking German and be run by Nazis right now. But yet you go to France and they do not like Americans whatsoever. And there's kind of this sense of which, you know, they don't really appreciate or forget that, you know, what we did so long ago. But you see this through history all the time of people doing significant things. You know, even Winston Churchill, who, you know, does so much, and then, you know, right after that, they don't want him leading anymore. And there's just so many things that happen where you're like, man, it's not surprising if a couple hundred years transpired that people would forget the great things that God did through Joseph to help the nation of Israel. And so the more important thing about this is the new king, as he sees the descendants of Joseph and Joseph's family and you know, he realizes, you know what, I don't see them as a blessing being here. I see them as a threat. And this is the, the kind of turning point here from Egypt was such a great place because it was the place where God brought them, where they didn't have to starve to death during the famine. They were able to grow without idolatry and intermarrying. But now they're facing their first real problem there in Egypt. And that's the fact that this new Pharaoh sees them as a threat and the reason he sees them as a threat is because they're growing so rapidly and they're so large, he thinks, you know what, if someone were to attack us, an army were to come against us as Egyptians, if these Hebrews were to join that army, we'd be done. You know, they're here in our land, and if these Egyptians, because there's so many of them, if the men would rise up against us with the other army that's also coming against us, we'd be in big trouble. And so this is kind of his fear, and at that time, the Hittite army was quite large and, you know, had problems with Egypt, and that was probably one of the thoughts. You know, if the Hittites from the north come down and the Hebrews join them, then we're going to have some issues here. And so he comes to his people and tries to tell them, hey, you know what? For our own security, I got a plan, a plan that will protect us from the Hebrews ever wanting to turn on us and come against us with our enemies. And so he says, I want to deal shrewdly, the word meaning wisely. And what he does really isn't the wisest thing in the world, but he thinks it's wise. And so he says, here's my plan. I want to set taskmasters over them to afflict them with burdens. And so we're going to force them to be slaves. We're going to force them to build these different supply cities of Pitham and Ramses. And so here's the point where the Egyptians now have made the Israelites their slaves. You know, they lived there fine. They kind of just left them on their own. They, you know, they were just growing there. And now it's like, you know what, that's not good enough. We need to do something to make sure they don't fight against us. And also, let's take advantage of them. I mean, there's a lot of them. You know, we could make a lot of stuff with all the slave labor that we could have with them. And so here is his plan, and they implement it. And so now we see that the nation of Israel becomes slaves, and they start building things. And they didn't build the pyramids. The pyramids were built much earlier than this. Uh, and so um, we do know that they build some supply cities. One of them, we're told, is Ramses. Here's a picture of the Temple of Ramses and some of the ruins of the supply city. Uh, and because they built this at this time, that's another reason why people think Ramses II is the one that uh, could have been Pharaoh during that time because they're building stuff for him. But um, this new Pharaoh thought that this would stop Israel's growth. Okay, they're growing so rapidly. I know what we'll do. We're just going to afflict them. We're going to put all this work on them. We're going to make them our slaves, and they're just going to work all day long. And surely after working all day long, they're not going to be going and having lots of kids. So this is going to be a great way to slow down this growth, and then we won't have the same kind of problems that we do. But notice what verse 12 tells us. 
But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So here's Pharaoh's plan. I'm going to afflict them. I'm going to make them slaves, and that's going to stop their growth. And verse 12 says, the more they afflict them, all right, man, we just got to make more of them slaves. We got to give them more hours. We got to make them build more stuff. The more they afflict them, notice what we're told, the more they multiply and grew. And they're just pulling out their hair thinking like, how is this happening? This should be making them not multiply. I mean, who multiplies in this kind of situation and they don't know what's going on and they finally were told they were in dread of the children of Israel. You know, our plan isn't working. We're trying desperately to slow this growth down and all that's happening is actually speeding up and it's getting more and we don't know what to do. Something important for us to note here is that affliction can bring growth. You know, we don't like affliction. We don't want to go through affliction. But something that I think is an interesting thing that we see here, because God is on the side of the nation of Israel, and when God is on your side, affliction can bring growth. You know, something that's very interesting as you study through church history, you will see this pattern throughout church history of affliction and persecution which the people who are bringing the persecution and the affliction, they're doing it to think we are going to eradicate Christianity in our country. We are going to stop this growth. We're going to keep it from you know doing. And what almost always happens is the opposite. As they bring this persecution, instead of eradicating Christianity, it grows more than it ever has. Uh, and so we see this as a pattern throughout church history. China is a great example of this. There's been horrible persecution in China uh, of the church. And to this day, we still don't know the, the numbers because so many Christians are underground and in hiding, but many believe that there's more Christians in China than there are in America. Uh, it's just growing rapidly and rapidly at this huge rate in the midst of persecution. Tertullian said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And his point being, hey, that the more that people try to kill Christians and their blood is shed for living for Jesus, really it's just a seed that helps more growth. And all these times throughout church history as we try to martyr people who are following Jesus because we want to stop Christianity, so often the opposite has happened. So affliction brings growth in the church, but something personally for us is it also brings growth to our spiritual lives. Romans chapter 5 verses 3 through 4 says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Notice these verses tell us we can glory in tribulation. And none of us love to, oh, you know, why don't we glory in something? Well, let's glory in the fact that God is so good and He loves us. Let's glory in the fact of our families. Let's glory. I mean, tribulation is never on the list of things that we glory in, but we're told we can glory in it, not because it's fun or it's, it's a great thing to have happen to us. We can glory in it because it produces things in us that are so important for us to have produced in us. And these things that we're told here are perseverance, character, and hope. And so often as Christians, we say, man, I want to be a man or a woman of character. Well, great. You know what you need? Tribulation. Oh, no, no, no. I want character without the tribulation. Well, it doesn't work that way. And so, you know, this is something that's great where we can recognize affliction is something that is often used to just try to destroy our growth, just like Pharaoh tried to destroy the growth of the uh, Israelites through affliction. But yet God turns around and says, you know what? That affliction that was there meant to destroy your growth, I'm going to take it and use it to increase your growth spiritually. Uh, and so this is something that's just a wonderful thing that when God's on your side, this is something that is uh, available for us. And so the first thing I want you to take note of tonight is that God can take the affliction that you're going through and use it to help you spiritually grow. And this is something I think is just so important to remember because I don't like affliction. I'm sure you don't like affliction. And when we go through it, we're just like, Lord, get me out of it. Instead of realizing, you know what, God, 
I realize that you can take this affliction that's meant to hurt me, that's meant to slow my growth down, that's meant to do all these things from the people or the enemy who's throwing it my way, and you can use it to help me grow in a way that I wouldn't if I didn't go through this. And so please help me to see the growth that you're doing. Please help me to see what you want to teach me in the midst of this so that I might be more like you through it. So Pharaoh's first plan to stop the Israelites' growth, it doesn't work. Affliction, he thinks, surely, man, making them slaves, we're going to be good. Well, they just grow even more because the Lord is still on their side blessing them. And so now he's going to come up with a second plan, a little more evil and sinister plan than the first. Notice what he does in verses 15 and 16. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shapira, and the name of the other was Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, then he shall live. The second plan here that Pharaoh comes up with is just a horrible plan in the sense of you know how sinful it is, how wicked and evil it is. He decides, you know what? Affliction's not working. They're just multiplying more and more. So here's what we're going to do. The people I'm really concerned about are men. And men come from little baby boys. And so I don't want any boys because I don't want them to grow up to be fighting men who could come against our armies and us. And so here's the plan. I'm going to tell all the Hebrew midwives, as you go and help these Hebrew women have their babies, if the baby's a girl, let it live. If the baby's a boy, I want you to kill that little boy. And that will end our problem. We're just going to have a bunch of women, and I'm not going to be worried about them overthrowing us in the future. We'll kill all the baby boys. And so that is what Pharaoh tells these midwives to do. And the midwives now are put in this situation where their job is to deliver, their job is to be there to help women with the delivery of their baby. And now they're told, if it's a boy... I want you to kill and betray the trust of these women. Well, we're told the the names of two midwives, Shapira and Pua. And it's very interesting because, you know, throughout the Bible, you don't really actually have that many women who are mentioned, that many women who are named, who do different things. And the fact that these two women who are midwives, you know, and they're they're mentioned here is quite significant. And we're going to see why. Why is it that God shows in his holy word, to mention these two specific women, well, it's because of how they respond to Pharaoh's command to kill every Hebrew baby boy that's born. Let's see what they do in verses 17 through 21. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. And so it was, because the midwives feared God, that he provided households for them. So the midwives are told by Pharaoh, hey, when all these baby boys are born, you're going to kill them. That is the command that I give to you. But they don't do that. We're told that they instead save the male children alive. When the baby boys are born, they don't kill the baby boys. They allow them to live. And we're given the reason why. I mean, why would you defy Pharaoh and realize in this time, you defy Pharaoh, the likelihood is you're going to die. You know, you don't do what Pharaoh says, then you die. You know, that's pretty much how it worked at that time. And so they're understanding that reality. Pharaoh has given us a command. If we don't do that command, the consequences are going to be very severe. So why would they choose not to obey Pharaoh when he's so much of a a figure to fear? Well, because they fear someone more than they feared Pharaoh. We're told they feared God. And this is so important. The reason that they choose to disobey Pharaoh, the reason they choose to obey God is because they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. When Pharaoh hears the midwives weren't killing the male children, he asks them, what have you done? 
I'm sure this might have been a new experience for him. Like, wait a second, someone's not doing what I've told them to do here. What's going on? Why is it that these boys are living when I told you to kill them? And the midwives have a response to Pharaoh. They say the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're lively and they give birth before we come to them. Now, some assume that the midwives are lying here, um, and they could be. They could have just been saying this, but there's also a reality that this could be a truthful statement. Remember that God is blessing the childbearing of the Israelites, and through that, they might have been having children a lot easier, a lot quicker. So it is possible that they did it faster, but at the end of the day, they're not being fully truthful no matter what, because the whole truth isn't Well, the reason we let these boys live is because we come there to help these women, and if we were there, we would have killed them. No, the reality is, even if we were there to help these women give birth, we wouldn't kill these baby boys because we fear God more than you. But they didn't tell Pharaoh the whole thing. They just kind of say, well, man, these women, they just have babies before we get there. So what do you want us to do? And then that's kind of what they say. And so they're either way, they're not really giving the whole truth uh, in this matter. Stephen Cole said this about the midwife's statement. We are not told whether the midwives were lying or whether the quick delivery of Hebrew babies was a biological fact. Even if they lied, it's not for their deceit they are commended, but for their refusal to take infant lives. And the reason it's important is because sometimes people are like, well, you know, God blesses them, and so he blesses lying. The same with Rahab. God blesses Rahab, and so he blesses lying. Well, he's not blessing them or Rahab for their lies. He's blessing them, in Rahab's case, for protecting the spies, and in this case, for protecting these babies. That's what God is blessing. He's not blessing if they're being lying here. He's blessing the ultimate choice to obey him over Pharaoh. Uh, but what they do, I think, is just a great example for us. They say, you know what? We have a choice here. We have a choice to obey this leader over us who is telling us to do something that is wrong in the eyes of God, or we can choose to say, you know what? I'm going to obey God and not this leader and do what's right in the eyes of God. And so that's the choice that is placed before them, and they choose, you know what? I have a greater fear for God, and so I'm going to obey him over obeying Pharaoh. And the choice that they have is really a choice of, you know, who do I fear more? Who am I willing to obey? And this is a choice that we have placed before us so often. Proverbs 29.25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. You know, this is something that we need to realize. One of the biggest hindrances to living for God and obeying God and doing what He wants from us is the fear of people. It's a snare to us. It trips us up. When we are more fearful of what people think, and oh, what are they going to say if I do this? What are they going to think about me? How are they going to feel about me? How are they going to treat me? You know, that fear of this world and people and what they think of us is so often the reason why we say, you know what? I know God says to do this, but if I do it, they won't like it. If I do it, you know, they'll have this thing to say about me. If I do it, they'll treat me in this bad way. And so I'm going to choose to disobey God because I have a fear of these people. And that's so often the reason why we choose poorly in things that we do, in things that we say. And so we need to realize that the fear of God is something that should be greater in us than the fear of people. Galatians 1.10 says, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And this is a great passage that reveals to us, hey, you really, you can't serve people and God at the same time. you got to make a choice. Who are you going to have as your master? Who's going to be the one that you truly serve? Because if I'm serving men, I'm not going to be a bondservant of Christ. And this is our problem so often. It's like, oh, I want to, I want to please the world and please Jesus at the same time. It's like, well, the problem is they are opposite in the way that they think, opposite in the way that they live. And so you can't do it. You can't please them both because you're either going to, you know, please one and not the other or please one and not the other. And we need to be pleasing God and not the world. These midwives, they wanted to please God more than men. They had a greater fear of God than men, and it showed in what they did. I mean, they did something that could have been the end of their life. They were willing to say, you know what? We are going to obey God even if it means the wrath of Pharaoh coming down upon us and killing us. We're willing to die to do what's right. They have really the same principle that Peter and John had in Acts chapter 4 
verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. Right before this, the religious leaders say, you will not preach in the name of Jesus anymore. You will not share the gospel anymore. Stop it. And they tell them, hey, whether it's right to listen to you guys more than God, you judge. Ultimately, they're saying, hey, we have to listen to God. We have to obey him. We're not you. You're telling us one thing, God's telling us another, and so we're going to listen to Him, and that's just the way that it is. You know, in the Bible, we are generally called to obey the government, to obey our civic leaders. We saw that in the book of Romans. But there comes a point in time that sometimes the government asks us to do things or demands of us things that break the commands of God. Now, when they're not asking us to do things that break the commands of God, the Bible tells us we need to submit to them. We need to be obedient to them. But if they do now ask us to do things that go against God's command, like murder babies, well, then we say no. We will not do that. We will not do that. Why? Because we have a person who is higher than you, someone whose authority is greater, and that is the authority of God, and we bring obedience to him over the government when they ask us to do things that go against God's word. And so that's what these midwives do. They choose God's word. They choose what God would want over what the government tells them to do. You know, you might look at this and think, man, these midwives had it rough. That Pharaoh is a wicked, evil person, and they were under such a horrible government system and being asked to kill babies. And, you know, man, I'm glad that we don't live in that. But you know what? We're not far from this. You know, and you look at so many corrupt things in Paul's day and Nero and Rome, and we look at Egypt and things, but man, we have so much corruption in our government, so many sinful people live, uh, leading us. And I mean, we've legalized the murder of babies in our country. You know, and so we think, oh man, that's so bad there. Well, it's bad here as well. Uh, and so we need to realize the world that we live in, so much of it is so against God's word. And so we need to be those who are willing to say, hey, If you're going to demand of me to do this, well, there's no way I'm listening to that because God's word says something completely different and I need to obey him instead of obey you. Now, since the midwives feared God, didn't kill them, notice what God does for them in verses 20 and 21. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mightily. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. So we're told two things that God does. The midwives are obedient to him. They don't kill these baby boys. And he says, I want to do two things for you in response to that. First, he deals well with them. And second, we're told that he provides households for them. Now, this word household is a very interesting Hebrew word. It means to have family and children, those who belong to the same household. So it's not speaking of a physical house that God said, hey, you protected those babies and I'm going to have houses built for each one of you to live in. It's actually, I am now going to provide for you your own home in the sense of you're going to have children. And the reason this is so interesting is because during that time, the majority of people who were midwives were barren women. That's what their role was. You're now you know, in charge of helping with this because you can never have children yourself. And that was usually the role. Midwives, majority of them were barren themselves. And so it's kind of an interesting thing that we see here. I think the NIV translates it more accurate. It says, God gave them families of their own, that these women who didn't have families now get families because they protected these baby boys who they were told to murder, they don't murder, and now the Lord blesses them with families of their own. And even if they weren't barren, the Lord is still giving them you know, families of their own. Uh, and what a wonderful reward that God gives to these women. You know, So often people fear and obey other people for the sake of what they can do against them or what they can do for them. Uh, I'm going to do what this person wants because if I don't, man, what they could do against me is so severe. I mean, in this situation, I'm going to do what Pharaoh says because if I don't, he's going to kill me. You know, I I can see why people would come to that conclusion. Yeah, you know, my life is pretty valuable and so I don't want to ruffle any feathers here with a guy like this. And so I'll do what he tells me to because of what he can do against me. And other people do it from the other reason. Hey, you know what? I'll do what these people say because what they do for me is so great. 
You know, and for many of us, the acceptance of the world and the approval of the world means so much. And so, so I will act this certain way. I'll do these certain things. I'll engage in this kind of stuff. Why? Because I like what the world gives. I like the approval. I like the blessing. I like what I'm getting from it. So there's the negative side of it, of what they can do against us that motivates us to do what's wrong. And there's also the side of what we get that motivates us to do what's wrong. But what we need to realize is what God can do against us and for us is far more than any person in this world could ever do. And Jesus speaks of this from the negative standpoint in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. He says this, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Jesus is saying, hey, you know what? There are those in the world, what's the worst they can do to you? They can kill you. They can take your body. Yeah, you're dead. That's, but that's it. There's no more they can do. That's, that's the, the worst of the worst. They can kill your physical body. And Jesus says, don't fear them because there's someone who does something far worse than that. Because that's not the end. Fear the one who not only could take your physical life, but could also then send you to hell for all eternity. That's the one you should truly fear. That's the one who has the power to do something far worse than just take your life in this life. The one who has the power to send you to hell forever. So on the negative side, you realize, man, when it comes to who should I fear more, this people in this world and what they could do, or God and what he could do, but also on the positive side, the blessings that God can bring are so much better than the world. The world can basically give us practical, physical blessings. God can give us those as well. He can give us spiritual blessings. He can give us eternal blessings that are going to last for all eternity in heaven. And so what He can give to us in a positive sense is also far greater than this world. And so the second thing I want you to take note of is this. We need to fear and obey God over people, recognizing that what God can do against us and for us is far greater than what people can do. And I think we need to just realize that. And sometimes we lose sight of that. And, oh, I want the approval. Or, oh, I'm so scared of this response. And realize, man, God is so much more important to have uh, obedience to because of what He can do negatively and positively in our life. So the Hebrew midwives, they fear and obey God. They don't kill the baby boys. God blesses them. And notice what we're told in verse 20. And the people, speaking of the Israelites, multiplied and grew very mightily. So notice what we see here. Pharaoh's first attempt. All right, we're going to bring affliction. That's going to stop this growth. Nope, actually, the growth increases. All right, fine. That wasn't the best plan. Plan number two. Midwives will kill all the baby boys. That's definitely going to stop this growth. Well, the baby boys never got killed, so they continued to multiply. So Pharaoh's first two attempts to stop this growth that God was bringing upon the nation of Israel failed. And I want you to notice something very important here. The worse the persecution against God's plan got, the more God helped that plan to succeed. Pharaoh says less, God says more. Pharaoh says stop, God says go. And who wins? God. Pharaoh keeps trying, but he's trying against someone that he's never going to be victorious against. Now, if the battle was just between Pharaoh and the people of Israel, Pharaoh would have won. He would have much more power than them. But great for them, the the battle wasn't between Pharaoh and the people of Israel. The battle was between Pharaoh and the God of Israel who was not going to be defeated by Pharaoh. You know, this is a pattern we see throughout the Bible. Whenever a person like Pharaoh, whenever a person who is a leader in this world, or whenever Satan or his demons, they come against us, trying to destroy the plan that God has for us, they always fail, and God's plans always succeed. Why? Because God's more powerful. God's not going to be defeated by the world. God's not going to be defeated by Satan. God's not going to be defeated by demons. He's the one who's always going to be victorious. Now, it doesn't mean that it's not going to make our lives miserable. It doesn't mean that they're not going to do things that are going to be hard. 
I mean, the nation of Israel goes from living in freedom to living in slavery. I mean, things get bad for them, but yet the ultimate plan of God and their growth and the promise that God gave, that doesn't change. Pharaoh does not ultimately get to change what God is doing in this. But yes, the process for the nation of Israel becomes more difficult. And so when the enemy and the world come against us, yeah, there's things that are hard that we deal with and struggles that we have to face. But at the end of the day, what God is still seeking to do in us is not going to be changed because of that, because God's going to complete what He started. Philippians 1.6 says this, being confident of this very thing that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Being confident of this very thing. And this is something that we need to be confident in. Am I confident that God will complete what He started in me? And so often we're not. So often because of the enemy or the world and the things coming against us and the circumstances we find ourselves in, we think, man, God could never complete what He started in me because of all this junk. And we need to believe, no, that's not the case. The third thing I want you to take note of is this. Nothing will stop God from completing the work He has started in you. God's bigger. He's stronger than anything that comes against you, than anything that would try to hinder what He's doing in you, anything that would try to stop the plan He has for you, the promises that He's given to you. And it's not going to succeed. He will make sure that His promises come to pass. He will make sure that His plan for you is successful. He will make sure these things come about. Now, they might not happen the way that we have them planned. They might not happen the way that we might want them to come about. They might not be as easy as we would like. But at the end of the day, in the end of our life, God's going to complete that work that He started. He's going to do what His plan is for us, even though there's going to be many things that are going to try to hinder that plan. Well, since Pharaoh's first plan of affliction fails, his second plan of killing babies with midwives fail, he's now going to come up with a third plan, an even more sadistic and even more wicked plan. Notice how the chapter ends in verse 22. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Since the midwives didn't do what Pharaoh asked, he says, fine, I'm going to make it not just a command to the midwives, I'm going to make it a command to every single Egyptian. If you see a Hebrew woman give birth to a baby boy, you grab that baby boy and you toss him in the river and drown him. That's a command now that's going out to everyone. This is my new plan. This is going to work. This is going to stop the growth of this nation. And this is going to set the stage now for the main character besides God, who is the real main character of this book, Moses. Moses is now going to come on the scene with this as the backdrop. Any Egyptian who sees a baby boy born needs to make sure that baby boy gets cast into the river and killed. And so next week we'll look at chapter 2 and we're going to see the birth of Moses, but how does God deliver him from Pharaoh's wicked, horrible plan to destroy all Jewish baby boys? But the three practical things I want us to really consider here tonight in chapter 1 is first, God can take the affliction that you're going through and use it to help you spiritually grow. Second, we need to fear and obey God over people recognizing that what God can do against us and for us is far greater than what people can do. And third, nothing will stop God from completing the work He has started in you. So this is the start of what everything is going on now. This is the perfect entry point here in chapter 1 of, hey, now we realize why Pharaoh wants to enslave the Egyptians, why he's doing all this stuff, and it's going to see all these things that transpire after this. But um, any thoughts on chapter 1 and what we looked at tonight?